Okay. So I did some research last night into Italian horror. I, I kind of do these things um, right before we do the show, my research. Spontaneous. Yeah. I like to stay fresh. Otherwise, I'll forget. Like like my tattoo designs. I just, I need to, I need to do it on the spot. Otherwise, I'll, I'll forget. Yeah. And if we're going to talk about something that I've watched 50 times, I don't need to research on it. Yeah. But if we want to talk about kind of a certain slice of the film pie, mm-hmm. I need to keep it fresh too in my mind. Exactly. Yeah. A couple of things I found interesting about that was Italian horror in general um, really started because of Mussolini. And Mussolini's crackdown on film laws in Italy. Sure. He outlawed. Well, the, fasc- the fascist state is still somewhat oppressive. There's probably some mm-hmm. things that are censored and, and limited mm-hmm. and that could certainly come in forms of expression like books and films. Sure. And it was like before that they had a lot of like, you know, um, demonic imagery and extreme imagery in their films, the early um, uh, silent films of that era in the early 20s. But when he was elected in, in 22, all of that changed. changed the way he, – he only really wanted to portray like a very – um, happy and uh, positive way. Uh, a united front, more or less. Yes, uh-huh. certainly, certainly. So, you know, it was very so. And like, go ahead. No, well, that that block of time between twenty two and forty three, during up until World War Two, before the fall of fascism, um, those were mostly propaganda films. And like Russia and Germany, both they put out the propaganda films was like, you know, Russia is the greatest state. You know, look, 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 and Germany is the greatest state, and this is how powerful we are, yeah. right? Yeah. Have, have you seen any of that, any of those? Well, I know there's the the Nazi Titanic. Oh, really? Yeah, I have not heard of that. Yeah, that there was actually a film. Oh, really? Yes, it's interesting. Yes, and so, I can just imagine um, Stalin. You know, he purged twenty million Russians, so including military mm-hmm. locals, people worked in these huge communal farms to feed the army, and they themselves starved to death. Jeez. So if you got too high in status or you said anything against the status quo, you're done. You're gone. Right. I don't think it was quite that severe in Italy as it was in Russia or Germany. Right, right. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, um, the authoritarian, um, which was Stalin, right, the authoritarian regime, he allowed a bit more um, freedom of thought and expression among among the Italians, uh, whereas in Germany and Russia, you were not you weren't allowed any of that. Even to this day, I'm sure there's like there's sure. people who are. Yeah, it's not just in Indiana Jones. Books were burnt in in Germany. Correct. I mean, that's that's a fact that happened. Yes. So a lot of our liberties that we take for granted, not too long ago in the mm-hmm. distant past, a lot of people weren't able to do some of those simple expressions. Exactly. So. So after the fall of, of fascism and uh, Italian films really had a, a, a big resurgence, and, and by that time, um, the American studios were doing um, horror, sci-fi, and Japanese were doing, I'm sure, Godzilla, you know, stuff like yeah. that in the 50s. Sure. Yeah, Universal Studios would have been putting out like uh, Dracula and Wolfman and mm-hmm. Frankenstein and all these franchises in their own right. And let's not forget, at this time, Hammer was doing... There, well, they were doing like adventure pictures and stuff like that, right? Yeah, Quartermass in the Pit and stuff like. Was that in the sixties or that in the fifties? Mm, I'd have to brush up on my research a little bit, but I know they redid their Universal horrors starting in the late fifties, like with um, Horror of Dracula. That was fifty-seven. Okay, so at the exact same time that came out, Italy released its very first horror film, 
post-fascism, which was none other than Mario Bava. So Mario Bava's name is going to come up a thousand times. Yes. Because he is the the grandfather of Giallo. He's the one. Yes. He's the one. Um, he released I, Vampiri in 1957. And... You know, that was the first gothic horror film, very dark, very brooding. Um, and it was like the early foundations of those giallo themes in a way with the way women are portrayed as having a lot of power over men and, you know, things like that. So, um, or certainly influence men's behavior very strongly. Definitely. Definitely. And then from there, 1960, Black Sunday. So, which, like, Black Sunday is, like, have you, have you seen Black Sunday? No. Uh, I get the terminology confused sometimes because there isn't, there was something before the film Munich that was also about, like, the Olympic assassinations, right? I think so. I think so, but I don't I don't think that has any correlation to what we're doing no, here. No, this Black Sunday is, uh, I have that, I have it over here, too. Um, I know, I think that's Black that's Sabbath. Black Sabbath. So Black Sunday, in the very beginning of Black Sunday, there's this great scene where they these torture these giant like burly men are like torturing this woman, and they put this mask of spikes on her, and they just like hammer the mask of spikes into her face, right, right Ooh. in her blood and gore and everything. It's black and white, you know, like a manual Iron Maiden. Exactly, exactly, and it, it, it that was just you know. The Italian saying, you know, this is our version of horror. Well, that's that's very funny. Did you ever see the uh, video or the fam- famous photo of uh, how El Duce was done in? Mussolini, uh, him and his wife? No. They were drugged from their villa, their estate. They were beaten to death, hanged, and burned in a public square. Mm, oh, okay. I think I did hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So, in that violence comes Italy's expression. Mm, okay. It makes perfect sense, it right? Does, here's, it does. here's this guy that rules with an oppressive thumb, mm-hmm. and him and his wife are are murdered mm-hmm. and hung and burnt and displayed publicly. Mm-hmm. So no no surprising that their dark imagery has to come from somewhere. Uh, absolutely, and there it is. Absolutely, you're talking about a culture that's rich in history and art and, and beauty and teeming with like sexuality and all this all this stuff the you know way back to the roman times with architecture and all these certainly i'm fascinated with with italy's culture so i'm really glad we're doing an episode on italy film we are this episode today is about italian horror in general and we are going to watch um it's it's an outlier in the giallo genre it is it in okay to be honest and to be fair, most you know Giallo fans would say mm-hmm. to be a Giallo, it has to be an Italy film. Mm-hmm. So we're going to watch Dress to Kill today, which in fact is not an Italy film. Mm-hmm. It's a 1980 American film directed by the great Brian De Palma. You probably mm-hmm. recognize him from Carrie and Scarface, Scarface, just to name a few. Yeah. But anyway, it is very much shot and expressed in the same way that Giallo films were done in Italy and earlier films in America like... Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. It was definitely a very Hitchcockian film and had to have been inspired by Giallo. Absolutely. And, and as, as it goes, I can cite at least a couple scenes very, very clearly, like the elevator murder scene. That's almost right 100%. from- 100%. Almost right from the case of the Bloody Iris. Right. And the fact that you have a gloved, blacked, dressed killer using a straight razor, that's from many Giallo so movies. So many. So many. Many Giallo movies. 
So if you'd like to watch along with us, and I suggest that you do, um, please put on Dress to Kill now. It is actually streaming right now for free on HBO Max if you have it. We are watching Rob's copy. Yes, I have the two-disc Criterion collection, and part of the great thing about becoming friends with Rick is he's encouraged me not to just get a copy of the film, but to get a good copy. And what a good copy is, is it has commentary, behind-the-scene makings, possibly um, an uncut version, which is what we're going to watch today. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to like a movie, give yourself a chance to see the most that that film has to offer. Certainly, and if you're going to spend 12, 15 bucks on a movie, do the research and get one that's got even for, you know you can get a used copy, get a beat up copy. It doesn't sure. matter. Or even doesn't I mean matter. if 15's okay, spend the extra 5. I got this for 20 bucks. Yeah, 20 bucks. 20 bucks brand spanking new. But um if you don't have the 20 bucks, not everyone does. Yeah, go, stream it. Stream it, throw it on, watch it on YouTube. Get it wherever you can get it, you know. Borrow it from a friend. Do yourself a favor. It's a 42-year-old movie, but find it and watch it. Sure. So here we go. If you have the film, throw it on now. We're going to watch Dress to Kill and talk about Italian horror. That's right. I love this Criterion logo in the beginning of this. I do, too. I mean, Criterion and Arrow, they put out a lot of good titles. They do. I don't have a big Criterion collection. I've got, I think... I have The Blob, which I absolutely, I hate that movie. I really do. Oh, the old one with McQueen? I hate it. Yeah. The 1988 remake is much better. We've mentioned that before. Yeah. Usually I like the originals, but uh, when it comes to sci-fi, it has to look, and 30 years later, the technology is night and day different. I love love sci-fi films. It just has to be, the movie, the movie is just so freaking goofy. Yeah. I mean, I, I get it. it's the point of it. You know, I'm sure William Castle and all this stuff was really huge at the time and all that. But yeah, it's hard. It's a hard. It's a hard watch. There's I, nothing scary about it, and I think that's what makes it a yeah. little tough to sit through. Yeah. And I, you could, there was tension in the '88 film. There, oh, there, there was for sure. This film has a tremendous cast. Oh, it does. Where uh, the main character uh, is Michael Caine, mm-hmm. and then we also have uh, Angie Dickinson. She was a supermodel. Mm-hmm. Then we have um, Nancy Allen, who was married. Brian De Palma, and she would also be in stuff like RoboCop. Then we have some uh, supporting characters like uh, Dennis Franz. You may recognize him from the Die Hard movies and NYPD Blue, and also Keith Gordon from things like Jaws 2 and uh, Christine. Christine and, um, oh boy, he was in Back to School. Oh yeah, Rodney. Rodney. Yep. And what else was he in? Gosh, he's been in so much. He's a director now. He could think he quit acting, and now he just focuses on directing and I've always liked Keith Gordon. Yeah, he's really good in uh, this movie and also in Christine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really was. Um, and you know, and David Margulies too. Let's not forget about him. He's a guy who's been in everything, and you, not a name you might recognize right off the bat. But if you just say he's he's the the mayor of New York in Ghostbusters. See, I can't picture that face. Okay, I, I, but no, but. he's the psychiatrist. He's Michael Caine's psychiatrist. So there's this is, this is not a spoil spoiler free episode. We will be talking about elements of the film and the ending and all of that out of sequence. So if you haven't seen this film and you, and you don't want any spoilers, then uh, you maybe watch the film before you watch listen to the episode. But absolutely, and our enthusiasm is not contained until the final second. Correct. Our, we'll we'll talk about what whatever prompts us at that time. And right off the bat, here you're starting with a point of view shot which is very classic in Giallo that would go on to be inspirational in American horror films like Halloween and Friday the 13th. And uh, 
can I kind of take this one here? Can I kind of explain how this is really oh, different? Oh, go for it. Okay, so besides the fact that we have um, Angie Dickinson doing a, a shower scene and the body double was a uh, penthouse pet, although she's not referred to in the original credits. Are you talking about the close-up of her breasts and all that? Yes, like and, her, and her private area, her groin. Sure, she actually sure. has a, a body double. But it's very easy to watch this movie and think that this would be to stimulate a male response because we have a woman in a shower. But this actually turns it around and flips it. Angie Dickinson is watching her husband shave while she's taking a shower, and she actually has a rough sex slash rape fantasy. So the woman be, being on the receiving end of a sexual act, she's initiating it. We're usually in these type of giallo movies or American slasher movies. It's pretty much a male response or a male desire, at least the way it's shot and depicted on screen. Very, very good. Very good insight there. And, and I believe this this is a giallo film just strictly because it is so stylish. It is a, at its core, it is a slasher film. Even though it only has one murder, the way that the murder is done in this film is Correct. very much Correct. right from giallo. And just the way, just the way that um, it, it's, they, they handle all these things, especially like Angie Dickinson's whole scene to me always felt a little out of place in the sense of like this shot goes on for way too long and like her flashbacks, they handled her flashbacks in a very unique way. They will do split screen and they, and they hold on these split screen shots for, for way too long, but I really, really enjoy it. Yes. And that is, again, it goes back to a lot of the classic movies from the sixties and 70s where part of the substance of giallo is the style the way you're seeing things on screen not necessarily just you know plot point one plot point two correct and i'd argue that what also makes this uh, film giallo is its hyper sexualization and its graphic sexual nature which is which is uh, prevalent in a lot of giallo films so here we are we're just right into the movie and she's having a sex fantasy in the shower and then the very next scene she's having basically a quickie a wham bam thank you sex with her husband in bed and this was always a little confusing i was always trying to figure out like who like this dude was and what's going on and it's all very dreamy and there in this film there are several dream sequences um uh, in fact the one that actually is kind of confusing is the one later on in the picture where the sequence in the art gallery with the glove and he grabs her with the glove and she looks at him but doesn't like react to him even though she was like heavily trying to pursue him in a few scenes before it's all very it's, it's very confusing and it goes on really really long a very way too long yes and she ends up going to michael kane because she is a married woman who is sexually unfulfilled mm -hmm. hence her rape fantasy in the shower hence she's not really responding too much to her um, husband's quickie sex. And she does refer to it as like a wham-bam special or something when sure. she's talking with Michael Caine. It's, it's very disturbing. The, the rape thing is very, very disturbing. The aggressive sex is very disturbing. That's not uh, something that I enjoy in these films at all. Now we've got Keith Gordon in a really early portrayal of, of uh, technology here with this giant computer with all these circuit boards and relays and transistors and things are sort of like suspended in the air and yeah, he's doing this for a school science project, and uh, I was watching some of the special features on this. This is a copy of a computer and a project that Brian De Palma himself made 
for a science project when he was a younger man. Awesome. So he's using some of his own personal experiences to create this movie. And he also talked about how this movie came to be. It came from a series of images he had in his mind. Yes. And he linked several of those images together and tried to write a story around those. So he had the image of, um, I don't want to say, well, I think cross-dressing is fair. I, I, that's fine. Um, I mean, some I, some identity. Um, sexual identity. Se sexual identity struggles. He had an image of the shower scene. He had an image of the art gallery, the infidelity in the back of the taxi cab. So a lot of these images came to his mind, and he wrote the story around those images. He also called that episode of the Donahue Show, which they which they show later on in the film. Yes, that yes, he does mention that a, a military veteran was on there, and then they their life changed drastically. So some of these identity this was very visible in uh, early twentieth. Well, no, 20, 40 some years ago, excuse me. Kind of caught my words there a little bit. Yes. And this is not a film you could make today. It, it is, it is, uh, it's kind of, it's surprising the subject matter. And they do kind of, they don't treat it with kid gloves, really. It's, it's her explanation to Keith Gordon. I'm sorry, Nancy Allen's explanation of, of, uh, of trans in the end of the film is very, clunky it's very straightforward and and very ham-handed and not very sensitive i think again you, you could you could not make this film today with this sort of uh, language um without upsetting i think some people well, i think that's probably a good thing i think that we've come a long way we've learned a little bit about about that but uh, as a society i hope more sensitive people's feelings at least respectful people's feelings yeah well they don't really get too much into this. Basically, all right, now here she's going down to meet her psychiatrist, Michael Caine. And like we said, there are spoilers in here, so it's not really going to matter. When he becomes sexually aroused as a male, he deals with that arousal by dressing as a female persona named Bobby. Yeah. It, That's how it happens. It, 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 that twist when I first saw this, I, I didn't I didn't enjoy it, and I, I don't enjoy that part of it. I think it's... Um, it's not very. It might. It might be. It's not very original to me. It's not very interesting to me. Um, I don't. I don't care for it. I, I feel like they could have could have come up with something different. I guess his idea was. You know, he, he was inspired by the ideas of, of. I'm sorry, lack of a better word, transvestitism back in the '80s. What they called it. Yes. Um, Crossdressers or yeah. But it portrays people. With, with gender identity issues as like murderers for whatever reason, which is kind of odd, you know, like if you have a sexual identity um, confusion, it doesn't mean you're going to come out and go out and be a slasher and cut people up, you know? But again, you, I guess you're not supposed to like think too deeply into these things. It's, you know, it's, no. it's just a movie, but yeah. He, and he, again, this is the way he's explaining one person's behavior and it's big surprise, a fictional movie. And it, at least it's more than Norman Bates trying to cling to his mother's existence by dressing in women's clothing and, and mimicking her voice because he can't have her be gone. Correct. So he's they're at least trying to give a little bit more to it. The first time I watched this, it's not really a big surprise because it's easy to pick out Michael 
Kane and his alter ego mm-hmm. in several different scenes. Like at the bottom of the gallery stairs, he's actually on the sidewalk as Angie's walking to the taxi cab. Oh, so yes, you actually yes, can yes. see some glimpses of him prior. So it's he's giving you a little bit of a taste before mm-hmm. you get the main encore. I saw it coming. You did. It didn't diminish the third act of the film, though, for me. No. I think it's a it's a good ride to get there. It is. It it's is a fun ride to get there. But if you're sensitive, this may or may not be for you. Again, yeah, it's a 43 year old, 24 year old film or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> I uh, Brian De Palma spoiled this movie for me. Okay. Because I had watched an interview with him, and he. You know, he, he just basically said it. He's like, oh, Michael Caine is the killer and dressed to kill. And I was like, fuck. You know, I, I hadn't seen that yet. So it was it kind of spoiled it for me. But but I was okay with that. Like you, like you said, it isn't about the twist as much as it is it's about the ride to get there. And with this film particularly, because it is so stylish. And, and there is some really, really beautiful scenes, the way they construct the scenes and and I especially like the scene in the subway where Nancy Allen is escaping from that group of goons. Yes. And she runs into the subway and there's a beautiful shower. She, she runs into the police officer and she's like, oh, you better help me. You know, there's these guys who are after me. And then they, they go through these this tunnel and the lights cut out and they have this beautiful shot where they're panning the camera back and forth and they're, they're on the police officer and they come all the way around this way, 180 degrees to, to Nancy Allen. And then you see Michael Caine's face in the window and they come yes. back again. He's gone. Yes, he is. It's such an awesome scene. And then... Um, it builds tension. She's already on the run. We know he's after her, but now we know he's really close. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. Yes. I, I really I really enjoyed that quite a bit. And um, yeah, so... Well, you know, the thing about Italian horror that I want to get back to is Italian horror that has a lot of subgenres with it and I, I feel like the subgenres giallo or gothic horror have a shelf life of about five to ten years five to eight years maybe you know before they start to go stale and audiences start getting tired of them well i was doing a little bit of research on this because i had my copy of blood and black lace and bay of blood for years but that was the only two giallo movies i had mm-hmm. so i just had those then, you know, talking with you and doing a little bit of research on my own, and that helped me select my own titles and selections. But from the years 1971 to 75, Italy produced over 200 giallo movies. So you want to talk about an oversaturation of the market? I don't like a handful of Marvel superhero movies every single year. Correct. So that was almost like, we're just not only going to spoon feed this to you, it's going to be everywhere you go. But at the same time, it was, media was consumed very differently then. Like you, sure. you had to go out, yeah. sit in a theater and watch it. And a lot of those weren't available in Italy. Like you, they were shipped overseas and they were also repackaged and rebranded as other films with different titles. Yes. And and they, they made a great effort to hide the fact that they were Italian horror films. And this is all, uh, pre VHS. Correct. This is pre even home viewing. Right. So imagine that you had to go to a midnight movie, a grimy grindhouse theater to, to see these films. And geez, what a time! What a time to to be a film connoisseur and to want to ingest all of those films. I would have loved it. I would have loved it too. I mean, I I have some very fond memories of going into uh, video country and video visions and renting movies with my father. So I can only imagine. Now, 
I'm just going to use this as a, as a context, not that I would want to go to the old 42nd Street porno theaters, but if you just shut your mind and, and think of a big city environment with all these glowing bright lights, it, it's, it's evening time and there's just theaters everywhere. That's not really a, a presentation that we have anymore. No. In most cases, it's either there's one or two big 16, 20 screen multiplexes where you can go and get food and you can go have a beer, you can go have wine. It's not, <laughs> it's become so, what, 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 how am I trying to say this? So vanilla, so, yes. so prepackaged. Yes. It's like every town, you go, every town you go to, there's a, a Dollar General and, and pawn stores everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. But the old presentation of movie with the, the glowing lights, the big marquee signs, the, the display on the sidewalk, you know, the, you walk in there and you, and you smell the popcorn, right? And the mm-hmm. floor is a little sticky. Maybe there's mm-hmm. some cigarette butts and stuff around. Mm-hmm. That has a certain charm to me. Yes, I, I agree with you. Um, there was a theater like that in Janesville. <laughs> Downtown, right? Well, even before they revamped movies 10 here, I mean, that place was a shithole, scum oh, hole. Oh, yeah. It was bad, dude. Like, okay, so I went in there one time and there was, they had caution tape around these busted chairs. And the next time I went in, I was like, can I, does this theater have good seats? And she's like, all the seats are good. I'm like, well, the last time I was here, the seat in front of me was busted in half and had caution tape around it. So I'm just wondering if there's this seats has the big lounge chairs or you're going to make me sit on the floor to watch fucking like Thor 2 or whatever I was watching. Yes. Yes. The fact that you were inquiring <laughs> did they do anything to renovate this slum? They did. Yes. And it's I'm glad really, they did. It's really nice in there now. It is. Here's this really weird sequence. This this goes on for way too long. When you look at it like in context of the rest of the film, the pacing of this, all her stuff. And I think I wonder if it's just because it is Angie Dickinson at the time she was a bigger star. Maybe she was like sort of getting out of her heyday at the time. I'm not really sure. What. Yeah, I think she... Her fame probably was more 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. So she's she's an established name at this point, but she's not exactly like the new... A draw. Uh, yes, the new up-and-comer. And this just goes that she is a woman looking for a tryst. She's going to be, you know, infidelity, unfaithful. And this just takes a long time. Like she's doing some coy stuff like putting her leg over, dropping a glove. Then the guy picks up the glove and then he's walking away slowly, but also deliberately going around all the corners and... I think you could have done this in about two minutes instead of twelve. What do you think? I agree with you. This this needs a this needs a like I don't know four minutes of a trimmed out. Uh, but I think that this is heavily inspired by Hitchcock, and and I mean I'd, I'd argue also that uh, Giallo was heavily inspired by Hitchcock. Sure. And again, I do like the point of view camera work. I do like this set piece. I think this gallery is a beautiful set piece. So, you know, using the corners, using the doorways, and we'll see a lot of stuff in here. There was a guy and a girl, he kind of, the guy was groping her playfully a little bit, you know, like mm-hmm. first boyfriend and girlfriend do. And then later we'll see a couple where a small child runs away when they're looking at the map. So we're kind of seeing what these people see as they're at the gallery. Now, oh, now he's close, right? Now what is she going to do? Now she's a little, her heart's beating a little faster. Now she's got to get away. Is she second guessing herself? Well, this is a really good example of show don't tell type filmmaking where you're not she's not gonna sit down and have a conversation with one of these patrons and say, Oh geez, I'm really lonely with you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I really want to have an affair. No, no, you, you, you she, you're 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 
this POV shots here, you're from her, you're, you're in her shoes, you're looking at what she's seeing and what she's seeing, you're looking at what she's looking at, you're following her, you're in, you're, you're in her mind, and you're immersed in this world. Now we see the hand, yep, he's picking up her glove. He, yes. This is the shot that confuses me. Because like she's waiting for him, and there's no audible dialogue here. It's very interesting in this scene. No audible dialogue. You you like you think that he just come up and say, "Hey, Blondie, what's up? Let's go get some cappuccino." But he doesn't say anything. She's just like, "What are you doing, weirdo?" But she's been trying to like get in his pants the whole time. I don't understand. Yeah, her reluctance right there seems out of place with it's, the rest of it. Yeah, doesn't it? it, it it's, it's it's odd. It's odd to me. But I'm a, I'm a bit, could be missing. I'm just a. I'm just an ape. I don't know. I'm just. I could be missing something. But here, I love this. I love this split screen. Where she's showing. That's right. I dropped my glove. That's right. Yeah. I love the split screen. I, you know, it's a really good way to, to you know, to show them to recall the memory and to have another time and place. Later on, too, they do the same thing with Nancy Allen when she's on the phone with Michael Caine, and there, there's this sequence where it goes on for like ten minutes. And there's conflicting dialogue. You have her dialogue with the television, and you have his dialogue, and you're like desperately trying to focus each eye on both halves of the screen. And it's it's a little distracting, but I really love that. It's very interesting. Yes, you see, so you would like this Criterion copy because there's a series of interviews from like 2015, and one of them has the cinematographer in there, and everything that they choose to film in here is for a reason. Like, oh, where's yeah. the Where's the best way to stand so when you come around this corner? Oh, sure. And the painting on the wall of the gorilla with his legs I crossed love, provocatively. Love okay, there's a sexual imagery there. And then he also talked about how what a wonderful set location it is to shoot a subway train. Because, oh. you know, it's claustrophobic, right? It's underground. But it also has the lights from the outside. It also sure. has the lights from the inside. Sure. It also has places to sit. Then it's going to be moving fast. So as you look out the windows, you see other images Plus the platforms on and off, the big stairwells. So subway uh, underground stations are great set pieces for thrillers. Except for noise, I'd imagine. Yeah, the yeah. Unpredictable nature, like you're trying to get everything uh, set up and then you're you're ready to shoot and then all of a sudden this train comes barreling in when you're trying to read your lines or whatever. <laughs> That'd be uh, totally annoying. But um, I, let's see if I can think. Um, what about some good films that were shot that had a subway theme? I can think of maybe. Oh, I'm thinking of the first Death Wish with Charles Bronson. He's reading oh, his yeah. newspaper and they slice the front of it and he pulls out his revolver. Bam, bam. Uh, my favorite might be American Werewolf in London where he's running through the tube in England being chased by the wolf and you just have this great POV shot and the, these long tunnels and they're all you know tile tunnels. These posters are very bright in there. Sure. And he's being chased by the wolf, and and uh, you just get the sense that he's coming closer and closer. There's just so much tension in that American oh. werewolf scene. Now watch this, Rick. We should see Michael Caine as Bobby here. See, now that's a very deliberate thing. She's throwing her other glove, right? Mm-hmm. But she's saying, keep coming, keep coming after me. I want you to keep following. That's not an accidental glove drop. Right? No, no, no. And then she's going to turn around here and bam, the, the guy in the car is the man she's been and right there oh there's bobby there, i yep. missed it the first time i by the uh, hot dog cart that. excellent yes excellent and a great new york film too come hither here's your glove right mm-hmm. come get it great uh, great cab very suggestive yeah that's a classic late 50s early 60s car it's like travis pickles cab very much so 
I've just watched it again recently, Taxi Driver, and I absolutely love that movie. Yeah, I, I could see that you really would. I do. I haven't yeah. watched it many times, but I, I do recall enjoying it. Great film. Yeah. I thought this was Michael Caine at first. When I first saw this film, I, I glimpsed him very briefly. I was like, is that Michael Caine? And here they are, they're going to have some sexual encounter in the in the cab. And again, this is a very hyper-sexual movie, at least in the beginning of it is anyway. Yes. Angie Dickinson's character doesn't really play much into that later on. Of course, you have Nancy Allen, who's very provocative and, you know. As an escort girl. Yes, and she doesn't get terribly sexual in this film, except for when she's trying to seduce Michael Caine in his office later on in the film. But yeah, she's in lingerie and stockings and whatnot. Well, she's beautiful, beautiful woman. She, for her, I mean, just she's outstanding woman. And here we have a, uh, yeah. So um, again, back to Italian horror. There, the the some of the genres I, I really really enjoy, um, and I have a couple over here. This. Pagiani horror and um, just some different um, picks like uh, "Don't Torture a Duckling" by Lucio Fulci. That the 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 duckling spawned this great um, subgenre of nun exploitation films, all like sexy nuns being naughty in the sure under a cruel mistress. Or yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So the only way to express yourself is through yes know, deviant acts. I'm. Who knows? They're great. I mean, yeah. they, they are great, and and there's a there's a great box set out there. I think it's by Arrow. It's the nun. No, maybe maybe it's Severin Films. I'm not sure, but it's the next one on my list to pick up. It's the nun exploitation for film uh, quadrilogy. That I'm gonna pick up. Um, I yeah. do. I do have quite a big collection of nun exploitation films, but I really want that uh, physical set. It's a nice piece. Um. But with that also came, it was the Exorcist era, you know. Oh, demonic possession. The demonic possession stuff. Yeah. And there, there were so many of like Beyond the Door and and just so many of those uh, those copies because they really the Italian films really the, because the copyright laws were lax in Italy. You could you could really just take whatever you wanted and make your you know make whatever film you wanted and it's close to close to the original. As he wanted to do. That's why they had like unofficial sequels, like Alien Two, the Italian Alien Two, and yeah, and, uh, and just blatant ripoffs. You know, sure. Like when you watch, uh, I think it is I Vampiri. It looks exactly like Frankenstein. Have Doesn't you, surprise have me. Have you seen it? I have not. It's good. There's a lot of like tubes and beakers and like you know those all that stuff. Yeah, so they're using like maybe some of the set pieces. Very similar. Yeah, very similar. Yeah, and I don't have the collection that uh, Rick has, but I still do have a pretty good collection. Sure. Yeah. And uh, in addition to this one, um, maybe as we go through, I'll, I'll grab a yeah. one or two of them yeah, every now and then. Talk, let's, take, let's take this opportunity now to talk about some of your favorites. Sure. Oh, before we do, Angie Dickinson just is leaving the apartment with the guy she met at the gallery. Uh, she re- received a little bit of foreplay in the cab and then... She's just unfaithful right now, so she sealed the deal more or less. And what's going to happen here is she's going to look in his private papers and see that his wife contracted a venereal disease, which they called it back then, a sexually transmitted infection. Yes. And from him, which means now she potentially has the same sexually transmitted disease, which causes her to freak out, run out of the apartment, which sets in motion the the murder. Yes, and she has to come back because – 
she left her wedding ring by the alarm oh, clock. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, so were it, were it not for her having to come back, she probably would have lived. Ah, okay. But anyway, we'll get to that. But I have yeah, let's talk about I have a the- dozen movies that okay. I think, I mean, like I said, there's 200 and some. It's not feasible to watch them all. It's not feasible to acquire them all. But I have a very concise collection here that any of these would make a good initial foray into Italian okay, film. Let me ask you about these movies. Then. Sure, sure. I'm let's gonna, do that. Let's work it backwards. I'm going to interview you about these. Sure. Uh, so this one here is called The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. It's a very cool cover. Yes. Uh, it looks like it's a, this is an Arrow, this is a Arrow release. Yes. And so tell me a little bit about this film. Well, the reason I chose this one is because the story of this one is kind of like a local legend folklore where every hundred years or so at this castle the red queen manifests she comes to life and she goes on a killing spree because way back when there was two sisters one was called the red queen one was called the black queen there's a murder and then the you know paranormal so supposedly it comes back so there's a decent amount of body counts in it um some nice castle set pieces and this was one of them that came up frequently on some of the essential giallo or or knives out best of giallo so just in my researching various titles i chose to pick up that one due to the folklore paranormal subject matter it looks awesome it is pretty good now though this one here um i hear this one a, a big recommendation from you a lot about this film called death walks on high heels can you tell me a little bit about that one i can i mean you're gonna have to bear with me here because unless it's mario bava or dario argento or sergio martino i can't recall some of the director's well, names. That's okay. But that particular director, he made three giallos. One of them was like Death Walks at Midnight. This is the middle entry, Death Walks on High Heels. I believe it involves um, a jewel heist, trying to come to terms of a jewel heist or, or something of that matter. And it, it goes a little it goes a little slow, but once business starts to pick up, it really... It really, really picks really, up. Really picks up. It doesn't have a higher body count like some of the other ones, but the tension is is always ratcheted Palpable. up. Palpable. It, yes, it's going, and it comes to the fact that the killer had these contacts, I believe. Mm. So there's a there's Contact always lenses. Yes, there's always like a good a good little switcheroo mm. in there. Interesting. Yeah. It sounds good. Yes. Sounds good. Next up, we have this one here, which another one. I know this is one of your favorites of all time. This might be your favorite Giallo film. I'd like to. Is it your favorite Giallo film? It it is my, probably my favorite non Bava, non Argento Giallo. Okay. Yes. And this one is of like uh, a lady's husband dies in an airplane accident, and it's all kinds of shenanigans around a massive insurance. Policy. The case of the scorpion's tail. Yes, which is a Sergio Martino. Yes, there are some film. wonderful um, point of view killer shots in there. There's a lot of potential red herrings about you know who obviously may be involved, sure. may not be involved. But there's some very good lengthy um, pursuit scenes from the killer's perspective that are just beautifully done in there. Beautifully done. And that film also appears in the box set too, as well, right? It does. Yeah, you have the nice uh, Sergio Martino box set that has three films. Um, Speaking of which, that box is on sale now. It's only forty bucks. Nice. So it's a nice. good deal if you'd like to pick that box set up. Forty bucks on Arrow Films or uh, Diabolic DVD. Yeah, I got this one. I got my copy on DVD. It's just a bare bones, unfortunately. Nothing for the special features, but right. I picked it up for eight bucks. So I got. You can't a, beat that. I got a copy of the film for eight dollars. Can't beat that. And, and I'd, I'd wager that most of these films are available for free on YouTube. 
Um, they're sure. 45 years old by now. You yeah. know, so I feel like any film that's like 45, 40 years or older, it should be free. I think so. You know what I mean? Oh, here, yeah, here, here she's finding the Department of Health and all this. And this, you. And this yes. is still going on. I mean, like, we've been talking for 10 minutes now about, about these films, and then she's finally looking See, there at it this is. paperwork. You have contracted yeah. a venereal disease. Syphilis and gonorrhea. Yeah, that Syphilis folks. Syphilis and gonorrhea. Bad news, folks. Have you ever had gonorrhea? No. <laughs> no. And even if I did, you wouldn't the answer is no. So the answer is no, but for all intents and purposes, it's, it's still no. Yes. So next next up on the list is another one of your favorites. I know. This is what? This is the case of the bloody iris. Again, this is another really, really good one that's not um, Bava, Argento, Martino. This one involves some murders at a high-rise apartment complex, kind of like an affluent apartment complex. Then a couple models come in, and then the model starts getting some menacing interaction with some people in the apartment building, and it gives you some dated tropes maybe like is it the um lesbian neighbor that seems really really interested in her mm -hmm. is it this older lady's kind of deformed mongoloid son is i don't it think you can say mongoloid deformed mm. mal, mal disabled it doesn't really specify what exactly <laughs> happened to him you don't know if he's like in the, like a burn i think mongoloid like is he, offensive eh. i mean not from not by me but i'm saying <laughs> and it's a 50-year-old film. Okay. Oh, it is. Yeah. So it's a 50-year-old film. I, I don't even know. 1972. Yeah. I don't know if they. Blue they, Underground. They, yeah. They may use a different term to describe them. Or is it the quirky professor who always has the weird violin music going? But this has a very, very good um, elevator sequence murder in it where instead of the close-up of the black gloves killer, it's actually yellow gloves. Well, and, yellow. Yes. Very yellow. Cool. Yeah. Well, and this, then, yeah. And then uh, I think one of the alternate titles are what are those strange drops of blood on Jennifer's body? But they choose. Ooh, to do, I love that. Yeah. But they chose to do Case of the Bloody Iris. And this scene that we're about to see right here, Angie Dickinson gets killed in the elevator. It's hard not to see similarities between the great elevator death scene and this one, Case of the Bloody Iris. I, I can guarantee that's definitely where he got Because if this film is as good as you say it is, and then uh, – um, De Palma certainly was influenced by it. It's a very creepy shot here with this little girl. and It is. So, okay. Let's, let's, uh, let's kind of stop there. We're kind of at about the halfway point with my stack, and okay. then we'll, we'll come back to them. But, uh, what do I have in my stack over there? I mean, I've got, I think I have Black Sunday, or I've got, uh, I'm sorry, Black Sabbath, which is a Italian horror film. I've got Tenabre over there, which you have a copy of. Yes. Inferno. And I've got uh, Deep Red somewhere. You have that as well. I do. Yes. Um, I threw out Cannibal Holocaust because it is relevant. Um, I'm and, fine to talk about it. I'm not fine to watch it. No, I'm we're not going to yeah, watch yeah, it. I'm fine to talk about it. Basically, with those films, um, in, in the time in, in the early 60s, there was a series of films that came out in Italy. They were the Mondo films. You had Mondo Cane, Mondo Bizarro, in the style of, like, say, Faces of Death. Oh, sure. So they were these shockumentary um, staged films that showed extreme Africa and and just like uh, extreme violence and animal cruelty, which which led them to be a band. And it's, I'm just not, I'm not interested in watching animal cruelty, live animal cruelty. Uh, it's horrific. Here we go. Here here's here's the scene right here. Nice. Uh, yeah, and ooh, brutal. When I when I saw this, I just was like, ooh, that's you know. I mean, and there's I like the fact that you can see. The potential influences whether he says he's more of a hitchcock influence or not 
I see the Giallo, the black so glove killer. I. Especially wielding, this scene right there. Yeah, wielding the straight razor. And this is Ooh, right from brutal. Case of the Bloody Iris, where she's one of the ladies is killed in the uh, elevator scene in the beginning. And, and the just, fact that the killer is wearing black. It's I, always black, whether it's a top coat, a trench correct. coat. Uh, I just love this scene so much. Yes, and this one was cut and edited back in 1980 to avoid... Um, an X rating, and also the shower scene in the beginning was edited a little bit. There's less um, footage of uh, the groin or the private area, and the I can sex scene was a little little different. So there's about three scenes in here that uh, De Palma was forced to edit to get an R rating, and he was livid. He was beside himself. I he can did, imagine. He just did not want to do it. And you know, I got to say, I, I I don't blame him, but I understand that. If it were to receive an X rating, its distribution is going to be a fraction. So it would have been predominantly the financial kiss of death. Correct. If it were received an X rating. Correct. Yeah, X ratings were very, very different. Very, very different. It's at some point it didn't always mean sex. It wasn't certainly. Uh, it was just a restricted film, which would just meant that distribution was restricted. Yes, and the amount of people who could see it and in theaters that would carry it was restricted because your average mom and pop theater in like, you know, tumbleweed Idaho is not going to carry, yeah. you know, this film exactly. And again, look at that. We're seeing the she's seeing the image of the killer through the camera lens, the big circle metallic lens. So she's seeing them standing love, in the hallway. This sequence is brilliantly shot, so beautifully crafted. Yes. I absolutely love this entire sequence. I love the introduction of Nancy Allen's character. And in that character that she the man that she comes out of the room with plays a big role later on. It's Dennis Farina uh just demands that she find out the John's name so she can clear her name because he has to know, did you see was he a witness? Did he see this blonde woman? And so um yeah, he is the stereotypical yeah. cynical Grizzled old cop that uh, you just know, this I don't believe anything. You know, baseball. Yeah, you impress me. Lately. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and right. It, yeah, and it was a good twist on that. I thought because at the very end, he's just like, oh yeah, I, I was just fucking with you. Yeah, you know, like I didn't need you. I, I never thought you did it. I just wanted you to work for me. You know, it's kind of a sleazeball cop. Yeah, like this brown or jagged, big seventies collars, polyester shirts, and some of that. Yeah. You know, and I just—he's just such a stereotypical greaseball character. Yes. But like, you wonder though, like, how many films were directly influenced by this and just took that trope from directly from *Dress to Kill*. I, I wonder. Yeah, because I he's wonder. talking about some things in here. Part of his reason to encourage her to find out some more about this is because he doesn't have enough to get a warrant. So right. He, he can't just go in. To the psychiatrist office and look at the book. He needs this right here. He needs yes. this book that he's writing in. Yes. But you're a homicide suspect. Right. Who knows? People do strange things. If you were to happen to go in there and find something, well, you bring it to me. Well, that's fine. Right. I, mean, I can't just go in there myself. But as a, as a police officer, as, as someone who knows about law, that would be completely inadmissible, correct? Well, I think so. Yeah. Because if you went in and stole it, you, I mean, if someone else right. stole you can't do that. Right. It's called fruit of the poisonous tree. If you find evidence... How do I want to? Okay, if you don't have a valid reason for the contact in the first place, it doesn't matter if you find Jimmy Hoffa in the trunk. All right, if you start bad, anything that happens afterwards, it's still bad because right, you right. didn't have an appropriate reason for the initial stop or the initial contact. The officer, but what about 
if the person goes and steals it and brings it to the police, then it is still is it admissible at that point? Like what she does, if she would have got that book and gave it to the cop, is that admissible? I would think it would be. Okay. Because the police themselves did not violate any Fourth Amendment rights by doing an illegal search and seizure. Okay. Yeah. Just curious. Yeah. Um, one thing or, I, or yeah, yes. it could help by something called, what is it, totality of the circumstances. It could be used as like another piece in the puzzle. Like it adds an overall, another layer, another thickness to it. Like mm. in addition to we're not now just looking at one or two things, we're looking at three, we're looking at four, we're looking at five. Mm -hmm. These things come together to paint an overall disparaging picture for our suspect. Mm. Kind of it, 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 like building a cake, you know, you get more layers sure, to it. Sure, sure. I want yeah. some cake right now. Oh yeah. So now, now we're we're getting our first little uh, hint here that Michael Caine is responsible because his razor blade is missing. It's very interesting that whole scene because during that sequence, Michael Caine's character receives a phone call from the killer saying, "I stole your razor and I cut that girl up, the blonde girl, and all this." But like, yeah. that's actually is it him calling himself? It is, and it and it says something in there like, "You didn't help me." I'm trapped in my own body. Uh, you know, yeah, some, he, he some, gives some, it away. It, it does. He, he spills his guts. Like, he just, he he says it all. And here we have uh, Dennis Franz. And like I said, he's- Dennis Franz, not Farina. I'm sorry. It's yeah. Farina. That's okay. He was also really good in uh, Die Hard 2 with Bruce Willis and the television series NYPD Brew. Blue is a, was it Sipowitz? I never watched that show. I never watched it either, but no. I just remember him from City of Angels with uh, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> he was great in that, honestly. Yeah, and- I, I don't want to know what his demographic is, but it almost seems like they're portraying him as like an Italian in this movie. It almost seems yeah. like that. But, I mean, he has the gold chain. So he can, and like I said, this is stereotypical stuff, so just bear with me. But it's a high context culture. He's speaking with his hands a lot. He's very animated. He's very, he sits close. He's very expressive. He's not quiet. He's not subdued. He's not looking down at the floor. Those are all traits of what's called a high context culture i see i see and i know that from sociology class in okay. college so I'm, I'm not i'm not just you know spitballing here so it's very interesting that um michael kane's character here is talking to keith gordon the grieving son yes of angie dickinson you know have you ever seen split with uh james mcavoy is that one of the um it's one of the m, m. night Unbreak unbreakable yeah yes yeah, i i did and now i know you and greg like a lot of that guy's films, but overall, I'm I don't not really. I'm not, okay. All right, not a huge fan. Me neither. No, not a huge fan. No, I, I liked Sixth Sense. It was great. Signs is actually pretty good. Yes, I see. I liked Signs too, and Samuel L. Jackson is a a very very good actor. So I think he's great in Unbreakable. I don't necessarily. Oh yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, he. Yeah, so for that aspect alone, but a lot of his stuff to me, it's I use this term a lot: overpromise. Under delivery. Yeah, I completely the, agree. The payoff just isn't there for me as a fan. I completely agree with you. Uh, I, th I think that uh, he's very underwhelming more often than not. And part of part of his curse may be his initial success. The Sixth Sense comes out and it is a box office smash. He got really lucky. Yes. And yeah, he became kind of a meme early on, you know. That like the Shyamalan twist ending, like like the the ending of the Sixth Sense was a meme. Yeah, early where, where he's on, a ghost. Know? Yeah, yeah, he's a yeah. ghost every time. So now we see Keith Gordon here using his know how to set up a earphone here to the wall so he can listen in on uh, Dennis Franz and his 
I'm just assuming it's captain or lots of times detectives have a detective sergeant. They supervise hmm. the detectives. It's very interesting to see technology used uh, back then. And, and back then, those ear pieces was only one single earpiece. Remember those? Do you remember these things here? It was just one earpiece. You didn't have two earbuds. It looks very much like a, it looks very much like a modern uh, AirPod, but it's uh, sure it's one earpiece. Yeah, I had a cassette Walkman when I was a young man, and I just mm-hmm. remember the 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 foam circle that oh. was always around the speaker, and they'd get dry, they'd get brittle, dry, they'd crack, crumble apart. Yeah, they'd come in and out of your pocket, your jacket, you throw it around and get. And then you'd always have one that was invariably like split, and then they would just like you have one that was really good and the one that was really bad. (laughs) So now we're seeing a little bit more of a spoiler alert here that uh, Dennis, wait a minute, Keith Gordon, excuse me, is going to get involved in uh, solving this, right? He's already listening in. He's taking an active role in the investigation. And uh, Michael Caine is getting questioned here, and he's not receptive. Dennis Franz is trying to kind of coerce him or – kind of bully him a little bit and Michael Caine is too intelligent to fall for that bullshit pretty much. Yes, he he says um he he's giving he's asking Michael Caine all these questions about uh, Andy Dickinson's character and he counters with uh, how often do you have sexual intercourse with your wife and he says what what the hell what that's not in your business what do you care? And he's like well that's that's exactly how I feel about your line of questioning to me about this woman. You know in yeah. other words it's completely irrelevant so don't yeah, he, ask me about it. Yes, he turns it around yeah. on him. Which which just goes to show Michael Caine's uh, slick, sharp wit in this film. He's very, very, very bright, very intelligent, very tortured guy. Yes, he's very he's very poised though. He has a oh, he's so stoic. Yes, he has a, a, a grim facade, a very tough mm. outer shell, almost impenetrable on the outside. But and I think that the one thing that does give it away that he is the killer is they don't spend that much time with him. They make like him be this center. Of the story where they don't spend a lot of time with him. And I think that's just because he don't the director doesn't want to show his hand. Yeah. You know, like you don't want to show too much. And there's not really a lot of characters in this movie. Now I no. don't I don't mind that we see that Michael Caine's razor blade is missing. I would have liked to have seen that closer to the end of the movie. I wouldn't have liked mm-hmm. to have seen that so initially after the elevator murder. Because that sure. just, it, it takes a little bit of the fun of solving it out of it. But it doesn't matter because the way that this story yeah, is presented on screen is such a fun ride to get there. Well, that and they and they show the killer and they're going to have this. This is going to set in motion a sequence of events <clears throat> where Keith Gordon uh, constructs this elaborate camera trap, which is very cool. It's a very cool use of his technology, and it's it's just it's just an, it's a neat little trick. Yeah, because when, when you see it play out, he stops, so he times like how long. As a number of seconds, like people go into Michael Caine's office mm-hmm. and then they come out. So he Four used, seconds. Yeah, it's like the shortest one. So he's using that to kind of figure out approximately when people had appointments with them. And that's how he figures out who had the most the most recent appointment, like in correlation to the murder or something mm-hmm. like that. I might be getting it mixed up, but not, not too much. No, not it, too much. It, basically, yeah, it was like they wanted to see. So he, he has this amazing moped. Yeah, that thing like is a Vespa. That thing's dope, dude. It is. And he's got his cool little bucket on the back, and he he drills a hole in it, and he puts the camera in there. It's a neat little camera trap. But I love to I always love to see uh, technology portrayed 
in a in an old old technology pertaining in, in a classic film and you know like Goonies and things like that. They're sort of like Rube Goldberg things. Uh, he's interesting in, in Vengeance and stuff, but uh, it doesn't typically doesn't always play out really well. They kind of just drop the idea. They show it for like a novelty. It doesn't really play out really well. It doesn't lead to anything. Doesn't as far lead as to but, Holy cow, I didn't realize how long this damn sequence is. Michael Caine has been in the PD forever. Yeah, and it's just going on and on and on. And again, they could really trim a lot of this stuff down. But, you know, it, that's how these films were. Hitchcock films, all dialogue, not much action. It's yes. all set up. And it's really – I just, I love this. You have this three-quarter shot – or the, the third here. You've got, you've got you know, Michael Caine's character on one side and you have this other story going on on the other side. And – I love that. It's just, it's, I do too. It's very stylish. It's very stylish. Again, why my argument for why this is a giallo film, but but um, sort of not the, in the strictest sense of the no. words, but in influence and style. Influence and style. That's it's part of my collection. Right. Let's get back to that here. Let's finish Let's the talk stack about here. that. So this next one here, tell, take us through this one. Black Belly of the Tarantula. It has uh, Giancarlo Giannini, who is also famous. A uh, number of years later, in the Second movie in the Silence of the Lambs trilogy, he played the detective who goes after oh, Hannibal Lecter. And I ends love up, him. And he's the guy that ends up on the outside of the balcony disemboweled. What was his name in that? Uh, Ponzi. Patsy. 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 Yes, like, Inspector like, Patsy. Like um, Happy Days. Yes. <laughs> so this one is really, really neat because it has a premise as how the murderer does things. He dips a needle, like an acupuncturist needle, in the venom of this rare wasp that can cause paralysis. And he injects the victims with the needle and then kills them while they're still alive. Very cool. And this, this cool. one is very sexual. I mean, there's like a massage parlor in there. Um, but that movie is probably edited better than any of the other ones. The cover says, best giallo film ever made. What do you think about that? Well, you know, it, again, we talk about style a lot. It's that movie's there. got a lot of it. It's up there. It's, it's a lot of it. Now, I don't know that I would agree with that because... Everything starts somewhere. So if I were to tell somebody to go see one giallo, one giallo only, I don't think I'd pick that one. I would pick Blood and Black Lace. Probably. I would too. Yeah. I would too. But I certainly would. if someone says, you know, oh, God, these Italian movies are really good. Is there some type of hidden gem or, or maybe something that right here that I would enjoy finding? Yes. Right there. Yes. That would be the one. Blue Underground is a good company. I really, I see their stuff all over the place, especially the exclusive company. If you're in Janesville, if you're local, you go to the sure. exclusive company, pick up some Blue Underground releases. They have a bunch of them there. These two are Blue Underground. I think this, uh, these two are Arrow, and this one yeah, I think is just, just a, a bare bones. Just uh, a random one. Yeah, and again, those copies are very, very minimal as far as content, but if you just want to get your hands on the movie and enjoy them, sure. that's okay. Absolutely. Now we're going to get to kind of the bread and butter. We're, we have... The Argento, Al and then we have Bava. The Alfred Hitchcock of Italian horror. Dario Argento with the great Tenabre. Yes, 1982. By this time, lots of people would say the period has already been put on the giallo sentence with some people's opinion of his 1975 masterpiece, Deep Red. I think Tenabre is just as good in story and delivery as Deep Red, if not maybe necessarily the way it's shot. It shows in this one that it's sort of coming to an end. It does. You know? It does. But this is a really good whodunit. It's a great yeah, it's a great film. It's a great I highly recommend. I love this film. It's violent, but yes. you know, most of us have, have saw Nightmare on Elm Street or any of those type of American things. If you can handle that stuff, you can handle anything that's in these stacks. I'd rather watch this. I would be honest too. with you. 
I would too. Because I, you're, there's more layers to this. I think so. You know, and you're going to, again, you're again, you're coming from a culture that's just like it's deeply rooted in art and, and everything's very artistic and they had to overcome lack of money. They didn't really have a budget for all these. So you had intensely creative types making these films that were delivering over and over and over again, you know, in any way they could. Yeah. So kids check this one out here one of my favorites of all time the puppet scene in this movie certainly inspired a lot of puppet oh, sure. things in years to come and again this has a very prominent story that is really the same story in most of our gentles movies deep is red a, yes a person witnesses a, mu a murder and they take it upon themselves to solve the murder yes that certainly happens in bird with the crystal plumage uh cat o' nine tails to a lesser extent this movie also tenabre um but there is a certain scene in here, like um, I wrote down on an index some I, yeah, some I saw stuff. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, some stuff you can find. The opening scene in here, where the panel of experts is giving a speech at this beautiful theater. It's got these crimson um, entryway uh, cloaks or curtains and a lot of gold stuff, and it just goes like back and forth, front and above. Shows like the balcony and everything like that. It just kind of lets you know you're going to be in for a cinematography kind of delight absolutely deep red so i really like deep red i i think i like tenabre more mm, but okay. um i think you could pick either one of those and you're not going to go wrong tenabre is synapse release synapse pictures this does have uh, a lot of uh a lot of commentary stuff a lot of features and this of course is the arrow release and the paragraph of the bottom there is <laughs> yes. a there's a ton of shit usually 2k transfer from 16 millimeter and I, I don't know if they like it's, it's shot on 16, they bump it up or whatever sure. it is, but it looks good. And this sequence here in, the, in this film, back to the movie just for a second here. Yes. I'll tell you where we're at. I love this shot here. Yep, where, where he's got the stopwatch. He's, he's got the stopwatch. He's clicking off. How many seconds it takes people to come in and out. And then this is what he – this is he's developing his idea for this, which, I mean, this really only serves as a way – it's going to pay off in the very, very end of the film, not the last sequence. I thought it was going to be the last sequence of the film. <clears throat> what happens is, is that they go through and they have to return to his office to get the book. And this um, sequence here is going to set that up because they're tracking who this woman is. Little do they know it's Michael Caine. Yes. And, yeah, this is going to set up his camera trap and all of that. And that's going to put Keith Gordon and um, – Nancy Allen at his house with the Dennis Franz and the other police detective uh, in tow. More or less. Yeah. Yeah. And this this one has a little bit of a good fool you scene out there too when uh, he's outside the window and he gets grabbed. You're not oh, exactly, I love that scene. You're not sure who's grabbing him. Yeah. You're like, who's this now? Yeah. You know? But it's uh, that woman. And is that woman, is that the, the, trans, the trans person from the Donahue show early on? I thought that was the same person. Um, yeah, maybe so, but it actually ends up that the woman is one uh, is a detective. She's a detective, but I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if that was the the person playing her was the trans. It, it looks very much like that. I could be wrong. I didn't. So I like it. We show here that he has kind of his own blueprints on how to wire and set up this camera with very the lamps neat. and the, the wiring. And I'm not an electrical guy, but we clearly see that we have a red line and a green line. So we probably have some type of ground or, you know. I, I'm not an electrician. I, I don't understand it, but I love this. It's very cool. And again, this film is a product of a bygone era, you know. And today, this would be shot very, very differently. Very shot, very blandly, 
And I don't think that any of this stuff will come across these sort of these brooding things. And he, I don't know, Keith Gordon's character doesn't really come off as a as a grieving son either. Well, talk about liking this. Here we we see it. We have Bobby watching Nancy Ellen go into that thing. And I just like seeing it over Bobby's shoulder and then oh, watching sure. as the light comes up. You know, you and I talked about that for our screenwriting techniques. It's very, very similar. You know, because uh, you and I are working on a, a story together, and and I realized there's so many things you can reference from this film alone that yeah. you and I talk about yeah. several times. Yeah, and I so, imitation is a very good form of flattery. It's a good way to work out your ideas, you know, and if you want to if you're going to steal from someone, steal from the best, I guess, but so you know, Palma says that too. He never took offense to people comparing him to Hitchcock cuz I'm just going to paraphrase he says, yeah, "Well, he not? shot everything and probably did it the best anyway, so if I'm going to copy someone, why wouldn't I do it that way?" Exactly. What what what's wrong with that? He's already figured it out. Yeah. And you just do it in your own unique way. I love this little gadget. Here's the camera, the reveal here. And it's just such a just such a weird and little neat gag in the film. I think it just shows that he is um, he has that um, in, ingenuity, right? He can good word. Yes, and I like this little eyepiece. This eyepiece, like you wouldn't think of to install on the camera, right? Like this is a very cinematic thing. Like I bet you some someone said, "Hey, you know, he's gonna he's gonna have to have an eyepiece." Yeah. You know, on this contraption. And it's on the back of his scooter, so that yes. could be he could carry food in there. He could carry whatever he wants in there, but he's positioning his scooter in a way so he can film the entrance to the uh, psychiatrist office. Right, right. Very well done. Very cool. Very well done. Cat of Nine Tales. Now, this is an interesting film. I really, really like this movie a lot. What did you think of it? I've only watched it once. I think I'm going to have to come back to it. I okay. like that there's, you know, the theft at the um, Research Institute, which mm -hmm. is basically cloning for um high society mm -hmm. more more or less it's a weird one it, it is a weird one i do like um carl alden he's a very good actor i recognized him from cincinnati kid with uh steve mcqueen oh okay so I, liked, I didn't know that yeah, yeah i like seeing a familiar face um i like I, looking at these uh sleeves the sleeves yes the flip side here. The best thing about Arrow and a lot of these other grand houses, they have these in here. Ilgato e Novi Code. Yeah. So I, I like it. I definitely don't like it as much as um, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. No, I love that film. Yes, I do too, which was very successful. And this was his follow-up project, and he had a big budget. So to more or less do what he wanted. He didn't have any type of budgetary constraints with filming that movie. Correct. If you like Argento and you like his work, you should get it. And speaking of which, Bird of the Crystal Plumage, as you can see in my stack over there as well, I picked up the special edition quite a few years ago when it came out. And this is a, this one is, that, that special edition there is pricey. Yeah. Hard to get your hands on. But this this copy, just as good. I mean, why get why spend hundreds on that when you just need the film? I mean, like, yeah. I, I got lucky. I got it for like 25 bucks and. So I remember back in the day. I love the. I love this is my favorite. Oh, so good. I, this is my favorite cover of all time. So good, it's and the I. Best. I like that one there too. That we have kind of like the peacock on the front with its oh, tail yeah. feathers and, and the lady's blood. Um, I got that as a birthday gift. Margot bought it for me, and we paid almost thirty bucks for it at exclusive. Probably, oh, no kidding. Probably ten years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Or whatever the date on that release is, I've had it, it had for a while. To, it had to have been because that's when I got. This one. And for Valentine's Day, 
Um, she was going to get me a Danielle Harris Valentine, but I've got one of those from last year. And I said, I don't want you to spend 40 bucks on that. I already got some autographed Daniel Harris thing. She's going to get me the T-shirt in there that is of the painting that helps establish who the killer is in this oh, movie. Oh, right, right, yeah, right, there's right. A, there's kind of a very minimal painting of a woman being murdered in the snow by a killer in a black trench coat. There's all these right. trees and, like, animals and rivers and stuff. It looks almost like something a kindergartner would do. Right. But it's a prominent scene in the movie. And this actually, part of it really inspired me to kind of start thinking of images like De Palma said. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the art gallery set piece in the in- beginning of uh, The Bird with the Crystal yeah. Plumage. Yeah, it's all my, one of my favorites of all time, the Indian oh. Elephant. This sequence here is what I was talking about. When oh, you, sure. When you have Michael, the split screen with Michael Caine, it's very cool. Look at look at the uh, the contrast here. They're watching the same thing on television. She's she's sitting in front of her makeup mirror, this, uh, what do you call those things? Um Whatever they're called, it's got these lights on it and everything. They still make these things. Oh, oh yeah, the whatever. And then you, there's you get the same image on both sides of the screen. They're both watching it. The subject matter is uh, uh, trans. At the time, they called it transsexual or transvestite or whatever it was. And yeah, one of those two. It's not. It's just not appropriate anymore. It's people just don't want to be referred to as that anymore. It's fine. Um, but that was the – this is true. This is all – this is a real show, real episode, real person. Yes. And who 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 changed genders very, very, very early on. Not the first, but one of the early, more widely publicized ones. And this is a weird sequence too. Uh, Nancy Allen is an escort girl and this is Cleveland because he's, you know, from Cleveland supposedly. Sure. And I don't know why it's here. I mean – it's, I guess um, it just goes to show us that she's a call, a call girl. I mean, after she leaves here, she's still in this very um, lovely and very photogenic, friendly, flowing purple garment as she flees in the subway. So maybe it just has to establish why she's out on the streets before she gets chased in the subway. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah you have to do it this way because because of where it leads. You know, like you need, and this is just, this is just really it's just good writing. It's just good writing because this is exactly the way that I would think of it too. Like. If she's coming because if you if you start there at that to your point, she's coming out of the Sheraton. Why is she in the Sheraton? Well, she's that scene earlier where she calls her call girl service and says, "I need to get a hold of this guy." I think she thinks she's meeting that guy, right? Isn't that what it is? Could be like maybe she thinks she's meeting the killer there or something. Yeah, and she no no she thinks she's meeting the guy. Because she wants to get her John in touch with Franz because to clear her name. Yeah. That's like her whole trip. That's what she's doing. So I think that's what – isn't that what that whole sequence is about? She goes to meet that guy, and she, but it turns out not to be him. There is some consistency there because she knew who to ask for and he confirmed it. But – she didn't get something she was hoping to get there. Right, right, right. I, that, I thought I thought that's what it was. I could be wrong, but but in any case, um, that needs to set up like what she was doing, and and this is kind of an odd sequence though with here because you have Bobby on the street, but then you have the doctor in the office simultaneously. So you know this is sort of like when you go back in a second viewing and you're watching, and you're like, okay, well, when did this actually take place? It had to have happened prior to her being pursued in the taxi because he can't watch her come out right, right. of the building while he's doing research in his office. Now, who is is is, is it has he paid is, are they in a taxi behind or is he just in a car by himself or who's driving? 
I, I think it is Bobby. I thought it was he's in the back seat and he goes, he points like that and then the car takes off. Because uh, I don't know. Because as she exits the cab, she thinks she's getting chased by Bobby and the cabbie opens the door and hits the person. I but, love that. I yeah, love that. But it, it, we don't find out until later that he actually hit. It's the female detective. Oh, is that? Yes, it's the female detective that gets hit by the door. That's who it is. Because they're trailing her to see if she's getting the lead for Franz. That's what it is. I thought it was Bobby. She, oh, she, okay. She mistakenly thinks Bobby is after her now. But the person that's running on the sidewalk that gets schmucked by the door right here, this is the female detective. And, and, they, and they actually use that through dialogue at the end. So this is not Bobby right now. Oh, here. right. See, watch this. Pow. Boom. Wapple. <laughs> yep. And I love this character's cab driver. Yeah. And that's a nice red herring because it looks like Bobby. The same dark coat. The same hairstyle. I love that. And again, you, the, the, and those themes are prevalent in some of these films here. I remember you talking about that just a few minutes ago with some of these. Like, is it this guy or is it that guy? Is it this person? That sure. Person? It's, it's just a, it just a, you know, takes you know, just a little misdirection there. See, now we see Bobby is, in fact, right there, right? Ah. Like watching. <clears throat> yeah. So that was a nice red herring. We think she's being chased by Bobby, only to now Bobby and her lock eyes and she is in a mad gamble to escape. Now, here we're going to talk about how beautiful a set piece location Subway is. Oh, this looks Subway so is. nice. Oh, yeah. Everything's so brilliant. You know, oh, we cannot forget to mention one of the greatest Subway scenes of all time. Um, the Warriors. The Warriors. Yes, the fight. The same Subway, I bet. Look, you've it has got, to be. You've got a lot of advertisements here for Broadway shows. You've got Annie. You've got Grease. You've got a chorus line. You've got all kinds of stuff. Uh, a lot of advertisements here in these. Now, if I lived in a big city, I would use public transportation because – I do not like high congestion traffic. I get irritated. I get irritated bad. So I would use a subway. Yeah, I, I'm going to Chicago next week, and I'm really, really not looking forward to driving in the traffic. No. You're going to go see bad. Bill. Yeah. Good. It's going to be a. It's going to be a bad. <laughs> going to be a bad time. But it's okay. Traffic wise? Traffic wise. Okay. Yeah, not a no, no. It's gonna be an amazing trip. It's, it's gonna be uh, you know, try hate traffic in the city. Yeah, not not to pry. I was I'm, I'm no, glad no, everything no. is okay. No, 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 no. It's fine. Yeah. It's just uh I hate traffic. This this series is always really weird to me. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's whatever. It's again, it just shows danger in the city and Right. The sort of reprobates that she's dealing with here. Because she, she's talking with this guy and she says, well, am I bothering you? No, you're not bothering me. Then a larger hoodlum says, well, you're bothering me. Hmm. Then they try to corner her and then she flees into the subway train. You know, earlier I think I was talking about, I got distracted. I was talking about the Mondo Kane films, um, which in the 60s, that, that really spawned the cannibal films, hmm. which you totally hate those. Well- I'm not going to watch them because, um, I, <laughs> yeah. okay, I, I, I will give a little check mark in that I acknowledge somebody has to have a good working magistry of practical effects. But I'm not interested in seeing somebody get tore limb from limb. Oh, yeah, I'm not interested fine. in seeing a woman get impaled on a wooden stake. I don't blame you. Like um, Vlad Tepish in, you know, yeah. the character that inspired Ooh, Dracula. Bobby again. Yeah. I don't want to see something where a man gets his penis cut off or the top of his head removed. Or, that was Cannibal Pharaoh, or whatever. Yes. I don't want to see something where, you know, there's graphic beheadings or, or gruesome rape scenes. And, and no, I, I'm not interested. You know, some of the stuff, uh, a bunch of disbelief is a little bit easier, those gore splatter fests. But 
when you when they're shot like you know the 16 millimeter like accident films that can be a little bit harder to disengage with but yeah i just don't find that entertaining i don't find that oh, stimulating agree. you know and well, isn't violence violence? Not, not to me. No, because no. Home, home invasion violence is very different. And then, like, like I said, the, the Mondo Connie films—they're very disgusting films to me personally. Like, I have a hard time watching animal abuse. I refuse to watch things like that. I just—I get, I get nothing out of it. I get no enjoyment out of it. I'm sure you feel the same way with the cannibal films. I do, and but again, just because it's not something that I am interested in watching, I don't feel that that should be off the table for someone else. Know what you're getting into if you can. Standall, if you can stomach that grisly imagery, I don't understand why you want to watch it. But if you want to watch it, hey, knock yourself out. I'm not going to stand in your way. I just don't get it. Here, here's know? here's my second favorite sequence in the film. There's oh, Bobby. Beautiful, beautiful. And see, and that's what's so nice. I mean, the camera's moving, right? We're looking somewhere else, but she's already there. She's in the background. And I love the look on this detective's face. He's just looking at her at the side eye, looking at her real creepy, like like really judgingly, like this woman's very suspicious. And then you come back, pan around, and she's gone. And yeah, she is looking looking concerned. And see his bullshit meter starting to tick a little bit. Like he's he's getting to maybe something's going on here. Something's not right. He can't exactly put his finger on it, but he's going to look around. He's flicking his eyes a little bit. Now, she leaves the car, right? And then that's when she gets pursued by the other guys. Or he, okay, he leaves, he the, leaves car, the car. Because I was wondering, like, why doesn't he stop the thugs? And Well, because he looked out and he didn't see the thugs initially. But then the thugs get there. They are. There they, they, are. they come back on after he leaves. Yeah. And now Nancy Allen goes from car to car trying to get away. And then Bobby gets sprayed with um, homemade mace by Keith Gordon. That's right. Yeah, yes. that that sequence, I was like, I'm wondering who was gonna come and save her because I, but I don't know. Like, I feel like when I was watching this, I uh, I couldn't tell at what point she was gonna get killed. I thought she might be get killed. I was like, there's no way out this time. She's gonna get killed. This is gonna be the end of it. And I could totally see that happening. Yep. But it doesn't happen. Keith Gordon comes out and saves the day. Um, I really like how this is shot because the whole thing feels extremely tight, extremely narrow. Like you can tell that she, she doesn't really have anywhere yet to go. She's trapped, right? She's trapped. Very cool sequence. And then here's Bobby right inside the train car and she can in the breezeway. And, and they go, oh boy, we're going to back off. And then the aerosol foam right to the face. And I like, I like the overspray on the window to show the audience that's exactly what happened. There she comes out. Holding her eyes, you know she had sunglasses on and all. Exactly, <laughs> she managed to. That you know, I, I've been sprayed by OC. Oh, you do voluntarily you had to do it, right? Well, not no? voluntarily. Oh, it was really? required. Oh, we, that's what I meant. Like, yeah, yeah, it's we, required. Oh, yeah, we all had to. Oh. <laughs> Turn on a hot stove. Wait till the burner gets red. Then have someone grab you by the hair and just stick your face on the burner. Now pass. It, uh, Thank you. You should. Yeah. <laughs> Not having done that, I can't imagine anything being more excruciating. Horrible stuff. Horrible stuff. Now, he, now here he's going to start explaining to uh, Nancy Allen how he's doing his research and, and finding these things out. And she's impressed by his uh, ingenuity here. Yeah, yeah. She's impressed. She's impressed. And I, I always wondered if there was some kind of romantic thing going. Probably not because he's a kid. I kind of got it as, as maybe she's going to kind of almost be like a, a mother figure. Like a this, motherly thing. To this grieving young young man. And I thought that maybe she'd be a, struck up a romance with the cab driver. I was kind of hoping for that because I kind of like that guy. He was, <laughs> he was yeah. kind of a cool little character there. I'd like to see more of him. But Now uh, let's, let's finish our last two 
things of my cherry pick collection. Yes. One of my all-time favorites, Mario Bava's. A Bay of Blood. Great film. Yes, and this one definitely you can see the influences in this that would later become prevalent in movies like Halloween, Friday the 13th, etc. It has a big body count. The kills are graphic. And in one scene, there's a couple making love in the bed and they're impaled with a spear. Oh, guess what? That happens in Friday the 13th, part two. Yeah. And Same this thing. is 1971, almost 10 years before yes. before that. Now, that had an alternate title called Twitch of the Death Nerd. I which love is, oh, that. That's so cool. It's such a cool title. Yes. Does this have a flippable thing? Though? No, it doesn't. But that one actually has a really good um, commentary track by some Giallo historian. I can't remember his name. Tim like, Lucas. Yeah, I was going to say Tim Lucas. I have this. I have his book, Mario Bava, All the Colors of the Dark. That's cool. I don't actually have a copy of this, so I'm going to pick this up. It's Kino Lorber Studios. Kino Lorber is one of my favorite studios through the releases films, and they just released um, Mr. Majestic, Charles Bronson, and oh, yeah. Chato's Land, which we were going to cover on the show at some point. Yeah. So... So that, that one is very, very good because blood. yeah he's kind of turning it up a notch. And uh, the ending to me kind of seems a little silly and a little improbable. I don't but remember the ending. It, it doesn't have to make sense. I have to watch it again. Well, it's 71. So it's like Ijalo was just getting its feet, at yeah. that, getting its legs at that point. Basically, so. some children in a car, they're in a trunk. The parents open the trunk. The children shoot the parents with the pair of shotguns. Boom. Kind of like that idea. I have to watch it yeah, again. It's been a while. Boom. So, again, now we have this is a really interesting cover. Who put this out? Uh, VCI Entertainment put out this copy of Blood and Black Lace. Yes, and, and the it, cover of that is just very right. reminiscent of what those old magazines must have been like. Well, I, I agree with you. And this is actually very um, complementary to the style of the film, especially in the beginning. It was garish colors on it. Oh, and, yeah. Now, we've talked a lot about violence and, and camera work, but a very, very big part of Giallo starts with, one, the musical score, two, the colors, and three, the set pieces. And the opening credits in Blood and Black Lace are beautiful with the mannequin heads, the titles coming through. It's going back and forth, so you've got a couple different camera angles, lots of different colors. And then the scene in here when she acquires the diary and puts it in her bag. I love that scene. And everybody in there, all these different models, it shows close-ups on them. They're all looking for the bag. Oh, it's so cool. They all want the bag. They all want the bag. Yeah. Because it's got the, the yeah, diary. Yeah, the diary in of, it. Yeah. Of the murdered woman. And that, those yeah. are the excerpts from this movie I chose rather than the depiction of on-screen deaths. Oh, yeah. I thought that the, the way, style, I haven't seen it better. I haven't. No. I really haven't. It's it's so good, and it's such an early film, sixty four. Yeah, the first body count film. Folks. The first body count film, and it's it's it was the first giallo film in color. Yes, and that's why I I, I haven't saw the girl who knew too much. I don't really know that I'm interested in it too much because I think I'll see it. I'd like to yeah, get it. Okay, I mean I don't know that I'm going to go buy it, but I mean if, yeah, you know, whatever. But not having those vivid, colorful images take away a little bit from it now that I've already seen all this. Well, I think that that right? Yes, and I think that with Giallo what is essential is it has to be a color film. But otherwise, I think it's a gothic horror picture. Yeah. You know, because it, they they tend to be very baroque and you know, elaborate things otherwise um gothic horror style. And there are some, like, uh, there's a Christopher Lee one, The Tomb of the Vampire, or something that I really, really, really love. Yeah, that's good. That's I, I really like him anyway. 
he's great. But Tomb of the Vampire, I thought, I mean, it's not a very interesting movie. It's kind of boring and it's kind of like- Some me- of the Hammer films are like that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it meanders around a little bit. But uh, it's a very beautiful looking film gothic horror. I'm a huge fan of black and white gothic horror from the 60s. So these 12 films of mine go from the big heavyweight hitters, Bava, Argento, and then Sergio Martino is also probably number three, and I have one of his, and then some lesser known directors, but still put out very, very quality titles. And then we kind of end with an American tip of the hat, which we're watching now, and then Argento coming back in 82, several years after the genre is basically smoldering at this point, right? The fire's no longer burning hot. Mm-hmm. And he still comes mm-hmm. back with a real solid entry. He does. And now, um, if you want to, can you grab those two in the very, very end? Just end here. Shock and trauma. Oh, sure. So, You've, you speak fondly of these. So, this was one of the last Giallo films. I consider the last Giallo film. This is a brand new release from Vinegar Syndrome. It just came out. Um, if you want the edition with the slipcover, go to uh, DVD.com, um, VinegarSyndrome.com. Pick up a copy of that if you want. I got mine off of Amazon. It was fairly cheap. And no surprise that is an Argento film, yes? This is an Argento film, but it's from the 80s. It's starring James Russo from The Warriors. Nice. Um, Asia Argento, who we speak very fondly of on his, this show. We, his lovely daughter. We're very big fans of Asia. Not to cut you off mid-sentence here, but this guy walking in front of uh, Michael Caine is um, Tony Soprano's lawyer in the Soprano that's television what, that's series. That's David Margulies. That's yeah. David Margulies, the Ghostbusters uh, mayor. Oh, so oh, perfect. See, now I can yeah. put it in the right context. Yeah. There we go. That's David Margulies. So yeah. I, I really like this guy a lot. Now, in this, in this film here, he is seeing uh, David Margulies' character. Oh, he almost bumped his head on that. Yeah, that? he almost nailed it. Caine is asking when... Bobby comes in to have him call. And this, this guy has to know that uh, Bobby is a persona of Kane. So it's like, how am I going to call you? He's sort of like pay, he's patronizing him at this point. He's yes. got to be concerned about the pathology, you yes. know, within Michael Kane. It's very disconcerting to his character. When you when you rewatch this and you look back on it, you're like, wow, what's going through? Uh, David Margulies plays it off so so well on that scene too. You're just like wow, like because I was at the Metropolitan Psychiatric Institute, right? Like, so like the heaviness of that scene in the end, and, and we were watching it. You're like, geez, like he must have thought this dude was just gradually unhinged. You know, he is now on the slippery downward slope. Yes, bingo. Very, very concerned about him. So, um, trauma is a very, very, very good film. It concerns. It's about a. A uh, young girl who escapes from a psychiatric facility, and there is a killer, a uh, black-gloved killer, with this weird mechanism, this sort of uh, mechanized garrote, garrot, yes, sort of uh, decapitating people. Oh, sure, great, great, great film. Maybe um, you and I can watch that sometime if if we don't do it as an episode. Yeah, um, just you know, two guys and oh, some yeah, popcorn we'll and stuff like do that. that. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, Baba films, Shock. Shock. Okay. Mario Bava's Shock. Um, a great film. Really, really loved it. Are you familiar with this one? Um, no. I, I recognize that the, the title. Now, this would have been one of his last um, productions, yeah? Correct. Yes. Film by Mario Bava. Brand new. Just came out last week from Arrow. Artwork by the... I really like this this artist, uh, Christopher Shy. He's he he produces wonderful artwork that I really really enjoy. Bill doesn't like this guy very much, 
the artwork. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't the, the man himself doesn't have much good to say. I guess he had a, he had a negative interaction with him at some point. I don't want to tell Bill's story on the air, but he he did have a negative interaction with him at some point, um, which well, kind of soured me on him as well as a person. But uh, sure. I really do. I really do like his artwork, and I. Uh, so yeah, um, it's it's a good film. I, I enjoy it. I think that you would like it as well. So at some point, I'm gonna have to. Oh, we'll have to watch have, that. Yeah, it does have Christopher Shire right here in the end. So yeah, we'll definitely. Those are the last two Giallo films. I pre-ordered them quite a while ago, and I've I put a moratorium on my spending, so yes. I'm not actually buying any more films. I I paid for them quite a while ago. Sure. And I'm um, sort of uh, not buying any more movies until I watch the ones I have. So. Yeah. So if you couldn't tell, Rick and I are big fans of Giallo and films from Italy as a whole. So now we're gonna probably try to get back on track a little bit more because now we're going to kind of be wrapping things up here pretty quickly, right? Um, it, it does wrap up. This is a longer sequence where she tries to seduce Michael Caine to get the book. And then it, the whole situation sort of backfires on her very terribly. Goes horribly wrong. Horribly wrong, and it which leads into the into – the end of the film here. And I thought that this was going to be the end, but then they go into this weird sort of like, there's an epilogue in the film that I don't really care for. I mean, I, it takes away from the quality of what could have been a phenomenal ending. It was a really good ending. Um, I just think that the, like the weight of the experience on Nancy Allen's character they, I think he really wanted to show that, and it's, sure. it's successful in the end. But I really do like the sequence. Like, I wonder if he just didn't have the sequence in his mind of, like, I really want to do the sequence of when she's in the shower and and there's uh, like Bobby is coming for her and these these white nurses' shoes that are really squeaky. Yeah, and then like you see the shoes. And they're moving, but then like the camera just pans over a little bit, and then they're empty. There's nobody in the shoes. And then yeah. here comes Bobby again to slash her throat. And then she, Nancy Allen wakes up and she's screaming. And then, of course, Keith Gordon comes in and comforts her. Like, it's okay. It's only me. And yeah. she's sort of like terrorized now from uh, this whole experience. And I do like the fact that we see Keith Gordon sitting out in the rainy, thunderous night looking in the office window through a pair of binoculars. He's keeping an eye on uh, Nancy Allen. and um, Very driven character. Yeah, very, very, very driven. And... Michael Caine here, he doesn't let on that he's suspicious. I don't know if he is. Yeah, good question. Is he suspicious or is I, he I don't like... think he is because according to what they explain, when he becomes aroused, Bobby takes form in a response to his arousal. So I think if he were aware that she was up to something or that there was people were after him, I think that would hinder arousal, wouldn't it? You'd think so, wouldn't it? Yeah, because I mean, she sort of like she gets nude for him, and mostly nude for him, and sort of asks him like, "Are you attracted to me sexually?" And he's, of course, I'm attracted to you sexually. Man, but you know, this is very inappropriate. Like, I'm like a participate in this, but because yeah, he's he's dismissive. He says, "Well, I'm a married man. Why would I want to do that?" And is he married? He he says that. We don't know. We never see a wife in here. But uh, that would have been an interesting angle. It was, and one of the things that was edited from this was. Um, she says, well, by the size of the cock in your pants, well, that mm. was in this uncut version, not you know, by the size of the bulge in your pants. Oh, I that, see. That's what becomes acceptable for the R rating. 
So that was one of the handful of segments that had to be emptied. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. The graphic depiction of the straight razor scene. I love this. I love this because it shows the duality there in him, right? Like it's because it's actually in that mirror is actually Bobby coming a lot. It's kind of I think it's I think it's what he's he's getting to in that, you know. Yeah, because he's when he smirks, that's Bobby, and then this is the whatever this guy's name is, Jonathan or something. Yeah, and then uh, you know, this doesn't play well. Um, I think her like sort of sexual aggressive nature. Oh, but she's look at she looks so good. <laughs> she looks great. Well, again, Rick, oh Rick and I have commented in other episodes that we are guys from a. Bygone, bygone era. era. We're and, easily amused. And sometimes we can't help but comment on the feminine form, and sometimes we happen to enjoy that. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah, I'm not I'm, apologizing. I'm not apologizing for it either. But there is no nudity here, but it's very provocative. She's stripping down to lingerie, right? There's a nipple. Oh, that yeah, we do see, see a little nipple. bit. We do see that a little but bit. But she's nude later on in the, in the end of the film. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this, this sequence here, it doesn't play well. Now I think because I kind of sort of like thinking if it's if the roles were reversed it'd be like sexual harassment almost you know. But that's where this movie is taking what you would typically think is a male-driven sexual approach and it's turning it around. Right, right. But that's not exactly the I don't want to say driving force, but it's not giving it from the same perspective. Right, is that right. fair enough to say it, it like it, that? It is, it is. Well, I mean, gender swapping now is a trope in films where they take like, like in Dune, for example, they took some characters and male characters in the story and made them into women for, for I mean, like for whatever reason. I think, I'm not sure if they did it just to do it or if it had some kind of impact on the storytelling as a whole or whatever. But, you know... It's 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 become a trope in these films. So now she's shutting the door on him to, so she can go powder her nose, but she really wants to look through and find his appointment book because that is the piece of evidence that she needs to give to the detective. Here's Bobby. There right it is. There. Boom. There it is. He's that, made his mind up that she's going to go, right? That's Bobby. He's taking off his tie, but he, he's not taking off his tie to get undressed to have sex with her. He's taking off his tie to put on Bobby's clothes. Right. In response to his male arousal. Now, is she in... The bat was like, like a bathroom in there. Like, why did she close the door? Why did he let her do that? Well, I mean, I, I, I guess she just wanted to be discreet, right, or something. Oh, because she she says something to the extent of, "Why don't you get ready while I'm powdering my nose?" So she's shutting the she's shutting the doors. See, and I love stuff like that, this like is, through, through yeah. the through the binoculars. That's great, and I love those type of windows with those dividing bars and stuff. Oh, it's the is it is it bars or the leaded glass? Or yeah, leaded glass in the actual. It just I like it. I, I like, think it's cool. I like the set pieces in this movie. Not that forty some year old typewriter, but uh, I like the the chairs and everything. I, that's good too. Uh, th- there's this. I just saw this really awesome photo of Steven Spielberg in the set of ET, and he had his camera and he was he had he was he was uh, constructing the shot of e- the Halloween shot of ET uh, walking with the ghost costume hood on thing yeah it was really neat it was just like this board that was strapped across the front of the camera these two eye holes cut out of it and he was just like pushing it around sure so, I mean, it was really interesting it's very much the same way they did this and they put a little plate over it brian de palma did very um rudimentary drawings he did his own storyboards so he set up his oh, own really? storyboards about like how he would want 
the main focus of the shot and like where he was going to film from and stuff like that. So interesting. He, yeah. So he would paint. No, there, yeah, there's the shot we were talking about earlier. Um, I missed it when I was. There was the cop, the oh, female yeah. cop. Because you're like, who is that woman? It's yes. not Bobby. Or is it Bobby? We don't know. It leads us to think that Michael Caine has left the office and is going after Keith Gordon. Correct. Yes. But yeah, look he, at that Rolodex. Oh nice. man, I like a Rolodex. Could you imagine typing on that thing though? Could you imagine that? Ding, 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 ding. Just like <laughs> loading it in your typewriter and like, yes. What is like a mini typewriter like this big? And you, no, he puts it that one over there and does it. But yeah, no, he, I, that's interesting. He does his own storyboards. I think a lot of good directors do. Dennis uh, Denis Villeneuve. So you know, here someone here. comes up behind him, and you think it's Bobby, and it's not. No, but you think Keith Gordon has met his end. You think. But not, but not for too long because now we see Bobby looking out from the inside yeah, of the like, office. You're like, who the f is that? Yeah. But I, lo- I love this uh, misdirection kind of. Yeah, I love the misdirection. I also love the set design here. It's, I mean, it's very contemporary for the time, very stylish. But, but I now, like the fact that his office is under a stairwell. The doorway's under the stairs. It's so cool. Like the bottom of a, of a brownstone tenement in New York. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, yeah. I love it. Like I like that desk. I like that he has the the writing mats. So the those leather like yeah the big squares there. yeah so the mahogany Ooh. finish doesn't get hindered in any way shape or form what a really cool little thing the little this little flash of lightning there she is coming into thing and you see it's obviously Michael Caine in that shot there yeah it's not much of a surprise at this point and here comes the gunshot through the window which strikes Kane in the Again, clavicle she, she, area she's always saved by the bell That's you right. know at the very last minute. Boom! Right in the neck. I thought it was in the neck a little bit. No, oh, it was eh, kind of like the just neck, just above the collarbone. Yeah, yeah. I see, I see. Actually, that's a very common fallacy that that would be an okay area to get shot. No, right that, here. Yeah, that would that would not be a good spot to get shot. There's still a lot of big nerves and and veins and and, and arteries. Well, your carotid arteries like right over there. Yeah, yeah. So there's really not a great area to be shot above the waist, folks. So that would. The fact that he survived, I guess, could happen, but I would not assume it. Well, poor Nancy Allen's character has really been traumatized in this film because she's just one of those like conscientious objector, you know. Yeah. <laughs> she just like sort of happened into this situation where she's thrust in this murder mystery and she's running from an insane killer who's yes, trying to take her out, and, and then she finds herself the suspect and she has to prove her own innocence by putting herself in harm's way. Yes. 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 And here, and here at the very so it's torture is the big reveal, the very Michael Keaton without his wig on is very tortured and groaning on the ground. Yes, he's in agony from getting shot, which yeah. perfectly understandable. Now I'm not saying that would have been a great spot to to end it, but some of this other stuff in here doesn't add anything. This this doesn't add anything at all, and I, this is the scene I dislike very much. They just like hammer you over. They have a dialogue. It's, it's very much like the ending of Psycho when they're talking about like Norman Bates and like, yeah. says, you know what I mean. It's very very reminiscent of the very which I that scene was only a couple of minutes long. It was very short, and that was the end of it. They had the cool like. They, they transpose a skull over his face, and you know they have he's like talking to himself in the cell, and you're like. They used to like the glimpse of who Norman Bates really is at the end of Psycho, and that makes sense to me. But this whole thing where they're just sort of like hammering you over, they have this dialogue, and they go out of their way at the end to explain like transvestitism or transsexualism or or, or whatever it is they're trying to explain in this. It's just very ham-handed. It doesn't really play now, but you know what I think would have been cool after that shooting. You have it where she wakes up after the nightmare, mm-hmm. and then we see. Michael Caine slash Bobby in the institution. Just skip all this crap right here. 
Just skip it. We had a chance to go over this stuff before. We had interview scenes before. We've already introduced this guy. We know he's from the Psychiatric Institute. This other person on um, in front of Franz there, she's just a minor character. She's just here for this scene alone. I think you really could have gotten this information across earlier in the film because you have all of this, these elements of Donahue and these this transsexual um, terms and, and conversations that you have early on. And I feel like at this point, it could have, they could have written it where it'd be fairly obvious. Like you still, like you don't need this scene, but uh, you know, whatever. It's the first of its kind. It's a very unique picture at the time. There wasn't many like this. I can think of maybe sleepaway camp was uh, a very similar slasher yeah. style the very end angela's reveal the very end of sleepaway camp and the penis and all that stuff yes yes and this would have been this was controversial when this movie came out yeah it's um this this is actually i really i actually did enjoy the the banter between these two and and the, the gum thing and all that and it's just sort of a big relief to hear that you know, she was never really in any danger of being arrested or accused of the crime or anything, but he's just sort of a sleaze bag who put her in harm's way. And you go back and think about, like, well, how many times was she almost sliced in half by Bobby? So I'm not paying attention here. That other woman is the detective. Correct. That's the detective. That's the one that got hit by the door. That's the one that grabbed Keith Gordon. She doesn't say anything. She has yeah. no lines in the film. No, she's just kind of doing her best Arn Anderson standing off in the corner doing the... Yeah. Well, and again, like the like in the beginning with the Angie Dixon Dickinson thing with the woman man she had an affair with, there's a whole sequence where she's like that goes to touch her and he's trying to explain himself to her, but then they don't have any audible dialogue. It's very weird. And this is very weird here too, because Nancy Allen is telling uh, Keith Gordon what she overheard at the office. I don't want to say to the bemusement, but these the table next to her and those other couple there, they're kind of surprised that they're hearing this, that they're Listening in on all this. Well, this is supposed to be like the audience's reaction, like like the like the like the layman's reaction to all this stuff, like like your like your poor mother or whatever, hearing all these things these people are saying about it. You know? Yeah. Which again, it just seems like they had the shooting scene, which is definitely the the big tension. It's all building to that. The more time that it goes afterwards, after it, it takes away from it. And to me, in my opinion, I'm not a master storyteller by any. A stretch of the means. It just seems like it just takes away from the ending a little bit. That there's my take on it. That could be, or it could be, you know, we're so used to these sort of like uh, fast-paced modern thrillers that uh, that maybe recognizing a forty-some-year-old movie it, is moved yeah. differently. If it was black and white and it was in the '60s, we'd be much more forgiving of this film. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think so. Again, it doesn't diminish it from me, but. At this point, there's nothing else that's really going to happen until we see the the fake dream sequence. That's really going to catch your attention. That's really going to surprise you. Right? Yeah, it's it's a it's an epilogue, and I took it as an epilogue, and that's fine. It's just it's just an odd thing to have at the end of a film that's this this long, this long set of sequences of dialogue, and because this movie is approximately an hour and forty minutes, give or take. Yeah, it's a little bit too long. Yeah, I think ten minutes cut out of this would be perfect. Trim Wouldn't, it up a little bit. But you know, again, like we said, we're just we're really we're really um, or give it another twenty or ten, fifteen, and 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 um, have ex- more chase sequences with Bobby something, or something. Expound yeah. on it a little bit more. If you if you gave it an extra twenty minutes, maybe you could maybe you could 
trim some of it up and and rearrange the ending so you don't need any of this stuff. But I do I do like the epilogue it kind of because yeah I think at this point like you're invested in Keith Gordon's character you care about him you like him and of course Nancy Allen is very very attractive and she's a very likable character I think they all are very much and I think and, it goes to show that they're setting up house like is sure is she kind of like the adopted mother now and now it's coming full circle where Michael Caine slash Bobby is back at presumably the Metropolitan Institute. I can't see why this would be another one. I think it's oh – yeah, and I agree. And I, and I think that it's – back to your point. It is, it is – I think it's just good writing that they have to tie up all these loose ends because they, they show the mother getting killed and what happens to Keith Gordon. Like, then, like if they just ended it right there, you'd be like, well, what happens to him? There's too many answered, unanswered questions. And I think that that epilogue just, just answers all these – ties up all these loose ends in, in the script. And But again, you know, like I say, if you give this film an extra – 20 minutes and rearrange a little bit. You don't need any of that stuff. But uh, this sequence is very weird, but you give almost not every main character, but you give three of the main characters a dream sequence like this. You have Angie Dickinson in the beginning with two of her dream sequences. Yeah, two dream sequences and or one dream sequence. And you have uh, Nancy Allen with hers and then Michael Keane with his. And I just can't help but notice that all these, I don't want to say violent, but potentially violent, they're not separated. They're all in one big communal area. This reminds me very much of the scene in uh, Exorcist 3. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. There's a sequence in that where um, it's just a very weird – it's very, very, very much like this. In fact, if you – I should loan that to you so you can watch it. I think you'd, I think you'd Is that with George C. It. Scott? Yeah. I think you'd enjoy it. I think I would too. So Bobby here is still struggling with his – Let's just say his, his, his affliction violence, yeah. or his personality. And he kind of has a captive audience here with the other inmates here on this uh, multi-tiered stairwell. I think what they did with Split, which was different from this movie, is that they leaned into more of him just being a psychotic mm. and sort of the female persona was incidental. And I think in this film, they leaned too heavily into the trans the trans topic in this because I feel like it's unnecessary because it doesn't really fit his character. He doesn't want to be a woman. He's not trying to be like change his gender. He's a man with very like aggressive hostilities towards women and he hates he doesn't like women and, and he's 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 murdering them and and um I, I just feel like you know it's a like, weird way to address his arousal uh, that, yeah exactly that he swaps identity they, they, in response to it in other words they could have made it incidental you know his his sort of like manifesting into that character they, they i think they could have put a different spin on that made it a bit more interesting well, if he would have just have done that as a disguise to keep himself from getting caught maybe like if his why dead, not yeah like right exactly and i was thinking about that earlier too like if they could have made it where it was like he's dressing up as his dead wife or something like that and they gave it like a really good explanation instead of like putting this Putting this like trans this trans issue in here, which I don't feel like is really relevant to anything. But talk about you know keeping the authorities off your tail. If they had a scene like, well, we're looking for a, a female suspect. The witness is described as a blonde woman fleeing the scene. You know, nobody's going to suspect him, right? If he does, no, it, he's, if he's he does it as a yeah. disguise, as a way to conceal himself. But they wanted to put it in there. Um, that that's the way the character dealt with the arousal. And like I said, Brian De Palma weird. was influenced by segments from the Donahue show. So right. It was just one of the part of the creative process. So I get it. I get it. I feel like, I feel like uh, he, he, I, I would have personally, 
and I think at the time, I think I think it was high time and place. You know, like you've been. It's a very unusual subject at the time. You didn't hear a lot about it. Maybe it was a very new thing. So people were very titillated by it, you know, and no pun intended. Yeah. And, you know, 2020 hindsight, it is what it is. You know, I don't know. I, I guess I, I'd be surprised, but maybe I wouldn't. I don't know if someone feels the need to go back and, and find a 42-year-old film and get offended. No, I guess I'd, offended by it. I guess I don't understand their behavior, their rationale, what they think the end game is going to be. Movies are, are very much like going out to dinner. If you go someplace and you like the taste of it, then you're going to go back again. If it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, you're not. Correct. You're and not. I, I'm certainly not offended as a, as a human being by this film. I'm more offended than as like a writer or something, you know, like saying like, okay, I, I certainly like would have liked to see different choices made as far as making it feel more interesting or, you yeah. know, but uh, but I certainly am not offended at any social level whatsoever. Sure, yeah. And I, w- I was pleasantly surprised because this does have a slower pace. It only has one murder, but I found myself – I don't want to say glued to the screen, but my attention was never oh, waning. I, I agree with you completely. You know? I, I was I, I, a couple of times I did look at my phone because it was like, okay, these, these sequences are way too long. Dialogue's way too long. I, I, I found out, I found myself like going to IMDb and looking up like you know who was in what and some trivia and stuff. But See, now I really like this. Like it showed the glints, the light gleaming off the it. silver doorknob, Beautiful and the shot. slow motion of the feet coming in. Th- this is the type of stuff that all started in this big stack of of. Certainly, classic Italy material, and I absolutely love it. And well, that and Psycho as well. This is a sure. very, this is, all these shower sequences are very much an homage to Psycho. And De Palma himself had an affinity for showers, apparently, because how about the infamous shower scene in Scarface where El Pacino sees his friend get killed with a chainsaw in the shower? Dude, the whole beginning of Carrie is like ten minutes of naked girls in the shower. Yeah, so he has a <laughs> he loves the shower. Yeah. Well, we're it's, all vulnerable was, in the shower. I was just going to say, yeah, we're all very vulnerable in the shower. That's right. When I'm in there singing, you know, Motown songs in the shower, anyone that's in the same building is vulnerable. Do you sing in the shower? Uh, no, I'm just trying to be Oh, that's, I do. No, no. I, I used to. I used to really, really enjoy singing in the shower. I don't do it anymore, but it's been a long time. Yeah. If I, you know, if I live by myself, I certainly would sing in the shower more often. See, I like getting in the shower because I like the heat, like on the small of my back and sure. on my chest or stuff like that if I'm just physically sore. But I can't sit comfortably in any bathtub because I'm too tall. Too, too tall, yeah. So most of the time, the shower scenes for me are, are, are pretty brief. You know, it's just to kind totally. of get myself clean and, and get in and get out of there. I take comfort in my recliner. That's when I can stretch out my legs. Mm-hmm. I get off my feet. I kind of run the tennis ball on the bottom of my feet if I'm feeling sore. So Oh, you do? Yeah. Because it, it, it's a very – it massages the sore muscles of your feet – there's enough give in the tennis ball where you can do it without hurting them, but it's also strong enough. It's like getting a foot massage without having someone who's willing to give you a foot massage. That's interesting. I'm going to have to do that because I really like a foot massage, and I'm not in a position right now to get one ever, so I would yeah. really enjoy that. I, yeah, I have a, a friend of mine who is a, a professional massage person, and every once in a while I describe some of my ailments or what's going on, and, and she'll tell me to do some of these things to relieve the symptoms. You know, I'm, I'm glad this film is almost over because it is freezing in this basement. Uh, right now, my feet are cold. <laughs> I'm very cold. That's right. I'm cold. The heat's been off for about two hours now, and um, I'm extremely cold. And yeah, you know, This sequence has gone on for way too long. You know, it, it's, it's just, it's so long. Well, I want to say problem because clearly this movie doesn't really have a problem. It's a, it's a classic, but there's just not a lot of variety in set pieces and, and set locations and there's 
not a lot of characters in it. I'm okay with that. I just so, I, feel, I feel like it's just like they go back and forth and back and forth and back. And forth. How many times do you need to bounce back? And forth? I love those bright lights outside the window. Sure, that's beautiful. But, but sometimes shit or get off the pot. That's kind of how I feel about this. It's, it's like such a slow burn. Like, you know what would have been really cool? She gets out of the shower, the door's open, and she sees that white foot. That right there. That yeah. builds the tension. Who's outside her door? Right? Yeah. Yes? Yeah, I agree. I like this, though, with the reveal where she has her own razor. And I, I do like this where she – I love that glint. Oh, it's beautiful. And then I like it when this here, the shoes are just empty. Sure. I think that's really, that's really sweet. This movie – for the cinematography, it gets an A. If this if, if this doesn't get an A, nothing will. Would you agree with that? Yes. Oh, yeah. This film is, this is definitely an A plus film. No matter what, no matter whatever social issues you may have or hang ups or whatever, this is an A plus film all around. Just because of how stylish it is, be, just because of Michael Caine, because of Nancy Allen, Brian De Palma, all these characters give great performances. That's one thing this film does not suffer from whatsoever is bad acting. There is no weak link in the cast. There is none. It is such a solid cast, solidly made, beautiful looking film. And that, that is a really good ending. If they could have just like trimmed it a little bit, made it a bit more, but it's fine. It's fine that it's not because it's like it walks the line of film noir and Giallo and Hitchcock yes. and all of that. And, um, I mean, it's a great picture. It, it was, and I'm really glad that we we're able to to get this together and, and do this because over the holiday season and stuff like that, life happens. It's been a while since we did been Pale, a while since we did Pale Rider, but I think it's okay because the finished product is a good product. So if it takes us a little longer to make our selections and choose what we want to talk about, I'm fine with it. I am definitely. And we're going to get back on track here really soon with another episode of the Good, the Bad, the podcast. And uh, I think, I don't know what we'll do next time, but I'd like to finally get to Charles Bronson at some point. You know, I think so too. I, I think it'd be kind of hard to come to him and not do Death Wish. We can do Death Wish. We can do our Death Wish 3. It's my favorite. Death Wish 3 is my favorite. But Sure. It, it's got that early 80s silly campiness to it. Yeah. But it moves faster than the original. And so, it's, it's shorter too. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like we could fill good time with that by by talking about it. So it's only 90 minutes or 85 minutes or whatever. It's yeah. a perfect length. It is a perfect length. And there's some definitely some similarities with uh, the Dirty Harry franchise in there with the, the, the lead character who has a very prominent firearm. So Yeah, we can do yeah, all sure. that stuff. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that was this episode of The Good and the Bad, the podcast. Thank you for turning tuning in. Thanks for listening. Yes. Yeah, so again, you know, I'm Rob and this is my ever stalwart and production nucleus rick and we hope you enjoy our show and we're going to have many more of them for you many more thanks for uh joining us